Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. It's Wednesday, October the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am joined today by my colleague, Fintan O'Toole, to discuss two stories which have generated an awful lot of coverage over the past week. Later on, we're going to be talking about the lonely agony of Liz Truss. But first, Fintan, I wanted to ask you about a a really very different, and I suppose in my mind at least, a, a much less important story, but one which has nevertheless exercised the minds of many, not least yourself, in your Tuesday column. This week, that's the controversy over a pro IRA chant in the dressing room by the by the Irish women's soccer team following their qualification uh, in Glasgow last week for next year's World Cup finals. I think it might be wise just to say at the outset that this discussion is not about the Irish women's soccer team. They've apologised for the incident itself. They want to move on. And I think that's fair enough. Yeah, you know, I, I I wasn't really thinking so much about them as as I suppose that. Um that incident sparked a lot of um, writing and, and reflection on this and people saying, well, you know, this is just what young people do now. Um, so I just thought it was worth saying, well, if you want to say up the Ra, well, then, you know, think about what the Ra is, what it did, what it meant. So the column itself, and I would recommend it to anybody who hasn't uh, read it already. Every sentence starts with up there and then it is followed by actions which were carried out by the provisional IRA during the Troubles. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's an angry piece. It's it's not a pleasant piece for people to read. Um, and it's not a piece that I ever wanted to find myself writing again. You know, um, I'm of the age, to, you know, to have lived through the Troubles and and to remember these, this, these things, uh, you know, happening day by day. These were the events that we were uh, reading about and later on writing about, um, you know, and there is a problem of public memory in Ireland. I mean, we just have to face it, you know, that that if you talk to people under 40, certainly, um, they will tend to say to you, that's all in the past, you know, that yes, it, it happened. But then what is it? Do people really want to grasp with what it was? And what it was, was, was a campaign of extraordinary cruelty, which was mostly aimed at civilians. I mean, it's extraordinary the degree to which now you hear, well, they were defending the Catholic community. I mean, not knowing, just simply not knowing that, you know, most Catholics who were killed in West Belfast were killed by Republicans. They were not killed by loyalists. Um, Not knowing that the majority of people who were killed by the IRA over the course of the 30 years were innocent civilians who were were just gone about their daily lives. Uh, And not knowing that a lot of this was done with, with... you know, just just a kind of relentless um, lack of absolute, you know, any concern for the humanity of the people um, who were being killed, who were, you know, being sacrificed for Ireland, um, particularly the bombing campaigns, you know. Um, 
the bombings which were done over and over and over again, you know, in pubs, in restaurants, in cafes, on streets, in shops. Um, and of their nature, you know, they're, they're, they're not targeted. And it, it, it does seem to me to be extraordinary that young people who would say what Putin's doing in sending bombs and drones, you know, over Kiev or other cities in Ukraine is appall- an appalling abuse of human rights. Um, don't want to think about Lamon or Enniskillen or the Shankill Road um, or all those other atrocities, you know, um, which, which, you know, the, the IRA repeatedly did. Uh, so I just think it's, it, there's a duty really on those of us who are older, whether people like it or not, um, to simply say this is what happened. I want to come to that generational point uh, in a moment. But first, I was looking at the response to that column on Twitter. And Twitter, as we know, is no uh, is no yardstick by which to measure anything. But it was there was a recurring response from people who were critical of the article, which will be familiar to anybody who's been involved in these arguments over the years, which some people would characterise as whataboutery, you know, what about the the appalling atrocities committed by loyalist paramilitaries? What about the the murders and the human rights abuses of the British state and its armed forces, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Yeah, yeah. You know, th- th- this is overwhelmingly what you get. I mean, m- most of the response I've had actually is very positive. You know, from people saying this, you know, really needs to be said, and I'm glad somebody said it. But yes, you do get a line, and the line. I mean, it's very interesting. People really should think about this. So, so you you never get somebody saying, "No, that didn't happen." That the things you say happened didn't happen, you know. They just don't will not engage with them at all, right? So there's no engagement with with Lamon, no engagement with Claudie, no engagement with Enniskillen, none of that, you know. So just let's 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 gloss over the 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 the, the things we're talking about, and try and talk about something else, right? Try and talk about the fact that that other people committed atrocities, and you get two parts of this. One is why don't you write about those things? Um, what, you know, like a lot of stuff. Why don't you write about Bloody Sunday? You know, well, actually, Google it. Maybe you know, <laughs> I've I've written, you know, umpteen times about Bloody Sunday. I've written umpteen times about the Shankill Butchers, about the psychotic atrocities committed by loyalist paramilitaries against Catholics. Uh, so that's w- one of the things. Just people don't read anything really, and 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 therefore just think it's okay to say, well, you don't write about this. You're you're only giving one side of this. But the second, slightly more sophisticated response is to say, well, all of this happened in a context and you're not giving the full context. Of course, in an 860-word column, you're not giving the full context. But there's a critical part of this, right, which is um, the, the UVF is not running for election in the hope of being the government of Ireland. You know, the, the Irish soccer team or nobody else is kind of in, in the Republic is singing up the UVF or up the UDA or up the British Army or up the Paras, you know. Um, and, and if they were, um, we would, I hope, have exactly the same response, you know, which is say, do you know what you're cheering on? If you're cheering on the paratroop regiment, for example, you know, that, well, then you're, you know, you, 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 you need to own that. You need to say, well, actually, I, I approve of and agree with the atrocities the paratroop regiment committed on Bloody Sunday or in Ballymurphy, both of which I've written about extensively. Um, so this is specifically about the IRA. And, and that's the problem, really, is that, is that uh, you know, so many people simply want to deflect away from the reality of what the IRA did. One of the things that's extraordinary, you know, is that you get time and again, I'm sure you've got this as well, Hugh, you know, is that the IRA was defending the Catholic community. 
you know, and, you know, people just need to actually go back to history, to, to what happened. Um, the IRA did not defend the Catholic community. The Catholic community was left extremely vulnerable to mass murder by psychotic loyalist attacks. The IRA was not able to do anything about that. Um, I'm not saying whether it could or, or, or you know, m- might have been able to do so, but the idea that it defended the Catholic community is completely untrue. But also, as I said, more Catholics in West Belfast were killed by Republican paramilitaries than, than, than were killed by loyalists. You know, Catholics died in huge numbers in those atrocities. You know, if you put a bomb in a cafe in a city centre in a city like Belfast, the chances are you're going to kill as many Catholics as Protestants. And of course, that's typically what happened. You know, even the bombs in in Birmingham and Guildford, you know, I mean, quite a few of the victims in in Birmingham. And Jesus, we we shouldn't be talking about, like, why do we have to be talking about people's religion? But quite a few, as it happens, of the the victims of the pub bombings in, in Birmingham were were, were Catholics of, of Irish background, you know, uh, parts of the Irish community there. This was indiscriminate massacres, and indiscriminate massacres um, are not defensive, you know. And people, well, I mean, Sinn Féin needs to face up to this, really. Part of the problem here is that we, we have a vacuum, you know, where, uh, and again, I've said this over and over and over again, you know, that there needs to be a process of truth and reconciliation in which every killing, every attack is accounted for uh, every victim, whether they were Republicans, loyalists, civilians, none of the above, whatever, everybody has a right, it's a human right to be able to know whatever can be known about what happened to your loved ones. And, you know, this can't be selective. You know, we, we have time and time and time again, people of one political persuasion saying, I want to have massive inquiries into all the horrible things the other side did to our side and completely silent about the things that our side did to the other side or just did to innocent civilians, you know. And this is toxic. It's, it's it, 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 you know, it doesn't go away, this stuff. Um, people are very complacent about it, but we know from history that if you ignore human rights abuses from the past, your culture of human rights is is very, very deeply damaged and uh, it's it's very hard to get back. You know, as a republic, we just have to keep saying human rights are universal. You know, people have the same right to life. They have the same right not to be tortured. They have the same right not to be maimed, regardless of who they are. Um, And it's really quite damaging for a modern democracy uh, that we still have to argue that, you know, that we actually have to make that point. (laughs) You know, I I, I really wish that we didn't. um, But I make no apologies for doing so when it's necessary. I mean, you say Sinn Féin have to face up to this, but is it not very possible that Sinn Féin strategists look at this and look at some of the opinion pieces about it written over the last week or so, and even look at your kind of despairing over the fact that this seems to be receding into the rearview mirror of, of many people's memories and say, this is a job well done on our part. I mean, when you look at opinion polls, there have certainly been some in Northern Ireland, I'm not quite sure whether there have been in the Republic, that look at attitudes towards the troubles among people now as opposed to what they were 30 years ago. And one of the most striking things is there's a far larger proportion of the nationalist population in Northern Ireland now sees the IRA's campaign as having been justified than did at the time. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, 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 a, it's been very, very effective, um, you know, and the, the line which, you know, the, has been repeated a few times now by Sinn Féin is no alternative. There was no alternative. And this is this is historical whitewashing. I mean, this is this is obliterating the civil rights movement, obliterating John Hume, the SDLP, you know, every other form of resistance. 
everybody else who took part in 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 um, you know political campaigns, civil rights campaigns, none of that mattered. Stormont didn't fall. I mean, you, you know, it's 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 as if the success of the civil rights movement, which was spectacular, you know, the civil rights movement had brought down the Unionist state in 1972. That didn't happen. You know, you know, no, no, the. The war, so-called, had to continue for, you know, the best part of another 30 years. And so the, this kind of reshaping of it, that, that really the Troubles was about the H-blocks and it was about Catholics being abused. Uh, and, and that was it. That, that story, I think, has become very, very potent. But I think we need to be very critical here of, of the Irish government, um, which, which has, you know, sat on its hands, really, while this kind of narrative has taken hold. Um, again, I've, I've, I've written about this before, but but it's extraordinary that the the major record, you know, which everybody accepts is the most objective, um, well researched, dispassionate record of the of who who died, uh, which is called Lost Lives. Um, you know, extraordinary compilation. I don't think there's anything like it with any other conflict that I that I know of. Lost Lives is unavailable and has been unavailable for the last decade. You 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 can't buy a copy. Uh, it's not available online. Um, you know, you, if you want to get a copy now, you either have to spend about three or four hundred euro, um, you know, in a on an auction site, or you you might get it in the library, but you might not. This is astonishing. I I I cannot understand why the Irish government has allowed the memory of the troubles um, to 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 lapse. You know, to create this kind of vacuum. And in that vacuum, uh, it's it's much more amenable to tell a story, you know, which is that um, our side were only victims, and we didn't we didn't perpetrate um, the bulk of the violence. You know, the, 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 those simple facts are, are are lost to people. I mean, at one level, I understand the desire of younger people to to go along with that narrative, right? Because a lot of people are in despair, particularly over things like the housing crisis. And they desperately want to feel that there is an alternative, that, that you know, so, something good is going to come out of Irish politics, it's going to change, uh, Mary Lou Macdonald's going to be Taoiseach, and, and this is going to transform their lives. And I understand, you know, that, that having to think about or, 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 or confront the past and the IRS role in that past is a kind of a spoke in the wheel of that um, that that hope, you know, and and but but we can't we can't we can never allow that to be the case. I mean, you, you can never do that. It always does kind of surprise me, you know, that that a lot of um, if you talk to people in their teens or twenties or thirties, you know, very passionate, quite rightly, about what happens in the mother and baby homes, what happens in the industrial schools, what happened in the Magdalen laundries. And if you turned around to them and said, oh, that was in the past, though, you know, and the Catholic Church did a lot of good and there was a context and, you know, m- maybe we shouldn't really be digging into all of this. Let, let bygones be bygones. They would quite rightly turn around to you and say, that's outrageous. You know, that the human rights of those people are violated in the most obscene ways. And we must confront this. We must deal with it. It must be part of our sense of who we are and, and of our past. But then if you say the same thing about, about the Troubles and particularly about the IRA, oh, no, 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 that's all, that, that doesn't interest me. That's, that's, you know, that happened long before I was really uh, conscious of it and I don't want to know. And you just can't have a healthy democracy if people don't want to know about their own recent past.
So what's actually going on here? I'm, I'm conscious of the danger of us turning into a Statler and Waldorf on this when we talk about talk about young people. But Una Mullally wrote a very thoughtful and interesting piece about this, seeking to explain why it is that Ua Updara um, is a popular chant and why certain types of republicanism are also popular. I'm going to quote a little bit uh, from it. She says, Una Mullally says, and I quote, younger generations are aware of the older generation's squeamishness regarding republicanism and this in turn consolidates their gravitation towards republicanism because it allows for something every generation wants, which is a differentiating factor between generations that evokes defiance connected to the to new generations. Uh, it's also to do with how many of the tropes that previously previously made Irish republicanism unfashionable and which many in older generations still think of when it comes to republicanism, macho culture, violence, sectarianism, Catholic fundamentalism, have been dismantled. What do you make of that? Uh, first of all, I have a real problem with the use of the word republicanism in this context. Um, this has absolutely nothing to do with republicanism. Um, republicanism is a, is, a, is a political philosophy to which I um, passionately adhere. I'm a, I'm a, I am a republican. Um, and uh, republicanism has absolutely nothing to do with, um, you know, b- bombing the Irish Collie Club because they're, they're Protestants, you know, and bombing them, uh, you know, with, with specially made uh, incendiary devices so that their bodies will be unrecognisable. That's not republicanism. So, you know, th- I think this notion that somehow, you know, um, people want to be republican and therefore identify with this stuff doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Uh, the idea that it's some sort of um, generational way of dividing yourself, um, well, you know, uh, okay, I can I can think of better ones, you know, um, but but the, the thing I would just say, this is why I wrote that column, right? Which is okay, if if that's what you want, you know, then be honest. I mean, own it, right? So if you want to say that you find all of these uh, actions and incidents and atrocities acceptable. If you think that was a good thing and that that differentiates you from old farts like me, absolutely fine. You know, then then own it. You know, <laughs> but the irony here for, for me is that there's nothing new or you know generationally hip about this. The armchair Republican, so called, the armchair Provo, the the person who uh, the kind of recreational um, you know uh, uh, indulgence in this kind of tribal uh, acceptance or urging on of violence, you know, um, that it's the thing you do on a Friday night, um, you know, you go to a Wolf Tones concert or you, you know, you sing it with your mates when you've had a lot of drink um, or you sing it at a football match. Um, there's nothing new about that at all. I grew, I grew up with it. I mean, recreational Irish nationalism, you know, was, was the... Um, it was a, a you know absolute standard of of nineteen sixties nineteen seventies Ireland that I grew up in. Um, it, if you think that's new or some way you know exciting and trendy, um, I don't know. I've, I mean, have you tried going back to um, banning contraceptives? Um, you know, banning gay people because it was it was part of that culture. It was part of that culture of of doubleness. You know, where where you never confronted anything. Where you know you it was full of hypocrisy. Uh, and where, you know, this 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 kind of armchair nationalist stuff, it was part of a mindset, really, where we just, we never told the truth about ourselves, you know. And so there's that great, great line. This, and it all goes back to, um, you know, in 1907, Playboy of the Western World, John Singh, great Irish play. You know, what happens? People fall in love with a story of a really violent guy who says he killed his father. Um, 
and it's all great. And then it turns out his father's not dead. Father arrives and he tries to kill him in front of them. And they, they hate him. They're disgusted by him. <laughs> and the great line at the end of that play is there's a great gap between a gallus story and a dirty deed. And we've lived in that gap for a very long time. You know, that's, it's part of Irish culture. I, I, I just don't think that kind of doubleness, that kind of hypocrisy, that kind of saying one thing and meaning another or indulging in these, in these things for kind of recreational purposes is the sign of a healthy society. I think we're actually better than that. Um, and and uh, I think it's just time that we um, were able to, you know, say what we mean and mean what we say. If, if we do mean up the rat, then... Okay, you know, accept the consequences of that. And if you don't mean it, don't sing it. Isn't it the case that the whole, I mean, as, as with any kind of ideology, the whole history of Irish nationalism and Irish republicanism isn't fixed. It's always in motion in one way or another, affected by internal and external political events. So I think back from, back to the revisionist Republican wars, so-called, of the, of the 1980s, and then the sort of new kind of postmodernist adoption of a new, more international, more ambiguous, uh, more cosmopolitan idea of Irishness is reflected in everything from the, from the football team to you two to uh, Sean Hill and postcards, all, 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 all sorts of different things. And now we seem to be into another relationship with nationalism. Una also says in her piece, and I hope I'm not misquoting her, I don't think I am, but I am, I am paraphrasing her. She suggests that there's a, an increase or an upsurge in national pride and what she describes as republicanism among a younger generation, which she fuels, says is fueled in part by, I suppose, that kind of decoupling from those old tropes of, you know, Catholic conservatism and so on, but also by things like Brexit and also perhaps by more modern post-colonial and anti-imperial theory, which people would be more conscious of. And there's definitely that, that there's a different sort of a shape and a way of thinking about Irish nationalism now than there might have been 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, I think there's a huge confusion here between nationalism and republicanism um, and between the two of those and terrorism, right? You know, that, that to conflate those three, I think, is, is, is um, just simply not useful. Well, let's say, just for clarity, I think we, we share an understanding of what nationalism, which can be both good and bad, by the way. Uh, I think we're, we are actually talking about nationalism here, aren't we? Yeah, well, look, um, you know, nationalism is a fact of life. You know, I've, I've never denied being an Irish nationalist. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's, I'm very proud of being Irish. I don't know. There's no, there's no rational reason you should be proud of how you're born. You know, you didn't do anything for it. But, you know, I'm, 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 I happen to be delighted to be Irish and, and, and uh, you know, see myself very much as, as someone whose, um, you know, cultural, intellectual, social context is Ireland. Um, and I'm very happy that it is. Um, you know, so the, the sort of, there's a sense of national identity and of belonging. Um, but, you know, we have to um, say, who, who gets to say then what the content of that is? Right. This is really what the question is. Right? Do the Irish people get to say what the content of it is, or do self-elected, you know, oligarchic groups who are not accountable to anybody get to say what it is? And this is what people really need to think about. We had uh, one very, very powerful um, group of unelected people called the Catholic Church who told us what it was for a lot of my lifetime. Uh, and who got to define it in moral terms, you know, and to set the markers, the boundaries, uh, which were mostly to do with controlling women's bodies and women's sexuality. Um, and then we had another group who, um, you know, uh, 
were dying out really when I was born, but who kind of obviously came very much back into into being in the early 1970s, called, called them, calling themselves the IRA, um, who, uh, let's remember, you know, never, ever had any mandate from the Irish people for these atrocities they committed. I mean, they, they never saw it and certainly never had a mandate. Whenever Sinn Féin stood for election um, in, in, in North and South, you know, it, it was in single digits at most, uh, with, with some exceptions like the H-blocks, which was a very specific kind of issue, and they didn't stand at Sinn Féin. So th- there was never a mandate for this. And so, so this is the question. I mean, how, how, can you, how can you have a nationalism which defies the obvious wishes of the vast majority of the Irish people? The Irish people voted. This is not me saying this. Right? It's, not, it's not the Irish Times saying this. The Irish people voted. This is a democratic choice made by the Irish people. And what the Irish people voted for in 1998 was to say that their aspiration is to unite in harmony and friendship all the people who share the territory of the island of Ireland in all the diversity of their identities and traditions. So the Irish people voted to say our national identity is plural. It's open. Um, it's it's complex, and it expresses itself in a desire for harmony and friendship. That's that's what our national identity is, folks. You know, you don't get retrospectively to say, no, no, our national identity was expressed in putting bombs in pubs. Our national identity was expressed in kidnapping people, shooting them in the back of the head, and booby trapping the body. Our national identity was expressed in uh, inventing the human bomb. You know, by kidnapping somebody's family and telling him you're going to murder the family unless he drives the bomb at a checkpoint and kills himself and whoever else might be there. That's not our national identity. It never was. And huge numbers of people in Ireland object very, very deeply to being told that whether at the time or retrospectively, you know, that that's what my national identity is. National pride is a, a much, much wider thing, you know, and it's, it's, it's a generous, open complex impulse that that uh, recognizes the fact that this is ultimately about how we live together on the island and we don't live together on the island by um you know telling ourselves fairy tales about a really really nasty conflict that went on for 30 years um you know because th- this also is is the great irony for me a lot of the same people who 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 think it's fine to say that the IRA were great whatever they did was 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 good also think they're going to unite Ireland. I mean, also think that somehow, you know, they're creating an Ireland or they're creating an image of Ireland that's going to be really, really attractive, you know, to, 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 to Protestants and Unionists in Northern Ireland. Um, but not just Protestants and Unionists in Northern Ireland, but also to Democrats, to people who don't think that it's okay for unelected groups to, you know, take control of what they think the nation is and what the nation should do. Um, there are very different visions, really, of how you might unite Ireland. The IRA had one of them, which was that it would do it by force uh, and it would do it by atrocity. And uh, I think the Irish people's one, as expressed democratically, is that they want to do it peacefully. They want to do it through a process of of, of reconciliation um, and one that accepts that there's not going to be a single Irish national identity in that sense, but that it will be something that will be made out of plurality. Yeah, I mean, I wonder about some of that, and 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 maybe just one last question before before we leave this this particular subject. I mean, if you look at expressions of nationalism, which, as we said, it can be good or bad, but you look at them currently across Europe, West or East. You look at Polish nationalism, Hungarian nationalism, Swedish nationalism, Italian nationalism, British nationalism. Um, 
they provide us with some cause for concern. And I'm not sure I totally buy this idea that this resurgent Irish nationalism is all-embracing, open to all, progressive, and so on. I was listening to Brian Warfield, who is the author uh, of Ooh Ah, Paul McGrath, uh, or Ooh Ah, um, Up the Ra, um, which was the original version, although I think we should, at this point, pay homage to the disco hit um, Ups Upside Your Head by the Gap Band, the 1979 inspiration for all of this. Um that he was asked about this, and he suggested that critics of the chant were either uh, were either unionist or weren't really Irish. And there is the mask slips sometimes, and Irish nationalism can be just as exclusionary, divisive, and sectarian as any other form, can't it? Yeah, I mean that, that's that's exactly the contest that we're facing, you know. And and I think we're very very smug about the fact that there is no far right uh, party of any major size in Ireland at the moment. You know, we don't do that stuff. We're kind of all nice and pluralistic. Um, this is exactly why we need to talk about this stuff, you know, because we do have a very, very strong um, and very persistent strain of a far right nationalism. You know, of a nationalism which, which is which is violent, um, which is exclusive, um, and which basically sees the you know the meaning of Irish nationalism as being the crushing of dissent to its major project, which is United Ireland, uh, and the inclusion of everybody in a monolith, uh, whether they like it or not. You know, that, that, that is a version of it. And Warfield's thing about, you know, people not, not being properly Irish, I mean, this, this, this again, uh, you know, I, I can't understand how anybody in their 20s thinks that there's something kind of, you know, countercultural about this. <laughs> this is stuff, this is the Christian Brothers, this is... You know, this is the stuff that was shoved down our throats for, for, for you know, the first 75 years of the history of the state. You know, that, that an Irish person was a certain kind of model. And if you didn't meet that model, then you weren't properly Irish, you know. Uh, and, you know, that, that's, that's one version. It's there. Um, and, and if we don't um, counter it, uh, you know, if we don't, if we let it sort of, sort of fester and, and think it's okay and it's just a bit of crack... And it's something you can sort of indulge in recreationally. Um, I think you were very right to draw attention to the European context because people thought this about a lot of far right European nationalisms, you know, twenty years ago. You know that ah, you know, what does it, what does it matter if if you know people you know shout off at the mouth now and again about immigrants or whatever? It's you know, it's just letting off a bit of steam. It doesn't. I mean, fascism grows and 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 it grows by the acceptance of. Uh, the dehumanization of people who are not like you, um, and and this is ultimately why we we have to deal with the legacy of the of the of of the conflicts, you know, because that's what that's what um, this kind of violence is about. It's it's about saying that it's okay for me to kill you because I don't like you. I don't like what you stand for. I don't like your past. I don't like your religion. I don't like your history. Or I just don't like the fact that you have happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when I'm going about planting my bomb. You know, and so you you either have that, and and we know where that leads, or or we confront it. And and I still think that the vast majority of Irish people would rather have a version of their national pride and of their national identity, uh, which 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 is democratic, uh, which is open, which is pluralistic, um, which is progressive, and which is based on human rights. And you can't base it on human rights if you're going to say, well, actually, people we don't like don't have rights. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we'll be discussing trouble and turmoil across the Irish Sea. 
And you're very welcome back. Fintan O'Toole is still with me. Fintan, I've been observing with, not horror, partly amusement, uh, definitely a serious dollop of astonishment, the uh, the goings-on at Westminster, really the most extraordinary political events that I can remember uh, in my lifetime in British politics or perhaps even, even internationally, uh, a new prime minister coming to power, setting out a very radical programme and the whole thing collapsing within just a, a fortnight or so. And now she seems to be completely destroyed, seems to be a sort of a prime minister in name only. And, uh, and the whole thing is just crumbled and collapsed. I couldn't help thinking of you when I was watching all this happen uh, because I was watching it and I was thinking, Fintan is definitely going to have something to say about this and it is going to be something about Brexit. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing here is, I mean, you know, I, I wrote all this when she got elected, you know, that that uh, I think I said she would she would make Boris Johnson look like a political genius. Um, she would make... Theresa May looked like a beacon of empathy and, and she would make um, David Cameron look like a, a sort of um, a great exemplar of sincerity, you know. <laughs> um, the, the only function now of changing prime ministers that the British seems to have is to make the last idiot look better. You know, as you already people are saying, how oh, Boris Johnson wasn't that bad, you know. Um, and, and of course, Boris Johnson did that service for Theresa May. Everybody was saying, well, you know, Theresa May, yeah, she was pretty disastrous, but at least she, you know, she had some integrity. Or whatever, you know? um, and I think this is the interesting thing, right? So, so I, I, I'd love to be able to claim some credit for writing all this at the time she was elected, but, but actually, you know, every, everybody knew it. This is the thing, like, I, I mean... Uh, certainly, everybody watching it from Ireland, with a little bit of distance, you know, could could see that this was this was a, a death wish. Um, but but also, y- you have to think that most people in England um, could could see it too. You know, uh, um, like the, the, there's not a single thing about Liz Truss that would make anybody believe that she was capable of being prime minister. You know, uh, I mean, she she is was my lovely horse. You know, I mean, this was the you know. How to, you know, the Tories are somewhat at some deep psychological level fed up with governing, you know. So, so how do you how do you make sure that you lose the contest? You know, well, oh yeah, Liz, you know, it's like, uh, but you do have to take it back, you know, to uh, twenty sixteen um, at all sorts of levels. Um, I mean, one is of course economic. Uh, the governor of the Bank of England, former governor of the Bank of England, uh, Mark Carney, last week just. Um, was asked about Brexit, said he couldn't really comment on it as a former governor of the Bank of England. But he would just like to say one thing, which was that in 2016, the British economy was 90% the size of the German economy, and now it's 70%. It's, you know, really stark kind of figures of bringing it home to you, just, you know, this act of self-harm. And of course, they're still behaving as if the economic consequences are unreal because they can't admit them, they can't talk about them, they can't face them because they'd have to take responsibility for them. So you're, you're, you're dealing with an economic disaster, but you can't, um, you can't actually deal with it. So therefore you carry on as if you've got buckets of money and the markets are only too happy to lend you more money. And, you know, Britain, everybody knows Britain's going to be great again. So like, why, why wouldn't the markets just, just um, keep shoveling money so that we can give it to rich people? You know, I mean, that's the mentality, you know, and, and so in that sense, it's, it's, it's rooted in Brexit. It's also rooted in Brexit, of course, because Brexit 
a large part of it was about destroying conservatism as it existed. I mean, old-fashioned conservatism, you know, um, just as in the United States, you know, the old Republican Party is gone. It's it's Trumpist. The Tory party became the Brexit party. And, and so, you know, old-fashioned Tory things like, you know, the, the strong pound, you know, remember that? <laughs> you know, and fiscal responsibility and, you know, we, we 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 don't take risks with people's mortgages. All that stuff is out the window because it's not really that party anymore. You know, it's a it's a sort of right wing cult, um, and and of course a big part of that too was was getting rid of expertise, independent expertise. You know, so the Brexit thing has to be based on saying don't listen to all of these people who who seem to know what they're talking about because they're just experts, and we're fed up with experts, as Michael Gove said. Um, and you know, so you look at what trust did. The first thing they did was fire the the you know the the, the long standing head of the treasury, you know, um, an expert. And the second thing was to say that the office of budget responsibility, which is the independent watchdog, would not be allowed to, you know, to get its hands on the figures or or to to publish any kind of independent estimate of of what was going to happen. Um, so you know, there's an inevitability then, isn't there, about about this crash? You know that um, you 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 have this culture of um, bringing people to the fore simply on the basis of their fealty to the Brexit cause. Uh, you have the culture of dismantling any kind of independent scrutiny, and you have this sort of what I call anarcho-conservatism or anarcho-authoritarianism, indeed. You know, which is which has replaced conservatism, um, uh, and so those three factors, I think, were 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 always going to lead um, into a brick wall. Yeah, and the kind of the hubris meeting cold reality uh, and being shocked by it is 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 obviously a kind of a Brexity a type of a th- type of a thing as well. I, I do wonder though. I, I mean, I know what you're saying about the the political processes that that led us to this point. It it, it does seem to me that. What you might call the new right-wing parties, the you know the the new Republican Party in the United States, the new Conservative Party as it's emerged, are sort of strange constructions and somewhat ramshackle political coalitions between this new form of nationalist populism on the one hand and a really highly ideological kind of end of neoliberalism, let's take it to the extreme, kind of a part of it. And those things always coexist somewhat uncomfortably. And this is the point at which they completely blew up on their faces. That's what seems to me to have happened over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I, I would strongly agree with that, because you have to remember that the, the Brexit project was a, was a coalition. It was a brilliantly constructed coalition, you know. So it was a, it was a coalition of, um, you know, really, really pissed off working class voters uh, with... You know, all of those kinds of interests, the sort of um, Tories from the shires, the, you know, the people who just wanted deregulation, the, the hedge funds, you know, the, the right wing think tanks. So it, it put together those two forces and it was always going to crash simply because there was no way of, of um, keeping that coalition together. Right? Um, the uh, Johnson with some kind of insight i mean you know johnson for all his clownishness you know is was is not a stupid person and 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 he had a sense that he had to choose between these two and that the the best choice was to go with the red wall stuff you know was to go with the working class stuff to say leveling up um you know we're using all the opportunities of brexit now to to tackle the um, geographic and social divides in Britain, you know, so a sort of 
vaguely left-wing sounding policy, um, which, uh, uh, of course, he was much better at talking about than doing. I mean, he didn't actually do very much about it, but he understood that that was where rhetorically uh, that's that was the, pla- the place to put the bets was on that. You know, uh, and of course, it was in the short term extremely successful. I mean, it shattered the Labour Party. It, you know, it 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 did the red wall stuff. It it you know used Brexit to to reshape British politics, and it looked for a while like that was going to um, you know make Brexit the wedge issue. You know, so rather than Labour Tory, it was it was Brexit Remain. You know, and and the Brexit side was going to keep winning that that stuff. The problem then was that. Um, the, the reality starts to hit um, the failure to actually follow through with any of that. I mean, there had there had to be tangible benefits for the working class people who voted for Brexit. I mean, they had to start seeing something. And Johnson's incompetence, the 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 inability to concentrate, the inability to actually just deliver. You know, the the, the lack of political capacity meant that they were not delivering on that. And so the only thing that's left then is, is is to ditch all of those people and go for the other side, which is the lunatic right wing far right, um, you know, ultra neoliberal think tanks. That's 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 the only base they were left with, and it was always a ghost dance. I mean, it was always like you know when the 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 big Brexit project is now over, it's collapsed. So. What else can you kind of squeeze out of the bag? The last little bit of, you know, ideological purity is this idea that somehow, you know, the, the Singapore on the Thames stuff, um, that Johnson had the nous to pretty much ditch, you know. Um, but but Truss and Quartang, uh, you know, were the, the the standard bearers for that. But the thing about it is that it's 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 populism without popularity. You know, it, it, it has no political base. You know, it... it, it, it this was the idiocy of this thing that the there, there never was a a large political democratic base for Singapore and the Thames. There was a democratic base for Brexit as a you know two fingers to the establishment, level up, um, think about the people who've been left behind. Definite political base for that. Uh, but once you've ditched that and you've 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 gone to the other extreme, like where is your constituency? You know, hedge fund managers. You know, <laughs> there's, there's not enough of them around. You know, to to sustain this as a political project. Yeah, I the, the other thing I, I I was thinking about for the last few days was the legacy of Boris Johnson. The legacy that he kept pointing out when he was being booted out the door is this stonking great conservative majority, which is a sort of a poison pill that he's left behind because you have this utterly dysfunctional, utterly divided party that doesn't know what to do about this catastrophic leader. But the one thing it doesn't want is an election. So this could go on and on and on. And I wonder what that means both for British people and indeed for us, and particularly in relation to the the running sore, the continuing running sore of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fascinating, isn't it? I mean, my my guess would be there will be a general election pretty soon, you know, because it, it is just becoming ungovernable um, with the way it is, you know. I mean, let's assume they ditch trust pretty fast and they put somebody else in. You know, I mean, talk about lack of authority, you know. I mean, people said Gordon Brown had no mandate, you know, having having been chancellor for for you know whatever <laughs> over a decade, you know, um, and uh, you know, the, and it did. Like Bert Brown found Britain not to be governable by somebody who didn't have a, an electoral mandate, you know, and and here we have 
you know, we, we will have two removes from an electoral mandate, you know, uh, with the next person they bring in. I, I just, it's just, you can't see that being sustainable, even with the majority they have. It will collapse over something or other, you know. I mean, nobody saw Johnson going over, you know, over Pincher, you know, a, 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 a sex pest um, in the whip's office. You know, w- when, a, when a political ecosystem is, is, is just so debilitated, um, it, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just not going to be sustainable. Um, so I think there will be an election. Even if the polls indicate that well over half of the Tory MPs will lose their seats. Yeah, you know, but 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 can they stop it? You know, like the, what what you know, just what's the issue? I, I don't know what the issue is going to be, but let's say you know Rishi Sunak or somebody else, you know, is is prime minister next week. You know, um, how, how long can you go on with somebody who who has never sought a mandate, doesn't have a mandate, has no authority? Uh, you know, it it, it it just doesn't seem very likely that that's going to last. Um, the longer it does last, of course, the, the the worse it's going to get. So, so the thing you've got to remember is the new deadline now is April next year. So, one of the things that um, that that the the new chancellor, the fourth chancellor in four months, <laughs> did yesterday uh, was to stop because Trust was spending a huge amount of money on on supporting um, families with the energy in the energy crisis, and Trust said, "I'm doing this for two years, so this is locked in for two years." And if you notice what Hunt did yesterday, he said, well, we'll review it in April um, because we don't really have the money. Now, if they remove that in April, which seems to be the intention, um, it means that sort of, you know, somebody whose bills have been capped at two and a half thousand a year is suddenly facing four thousand, four thousand five hundred a year or whatever, you know. That's not just poor people. I mean, that's that's sort of ordinary middle England. Um, it's a disaster for them. And I think that's, Probably, you know, would you want to go to the country after that? <laughs> so there's this thing of, you know, do, do you want to go while it's bad? You know, let you know, stabilize it a bit, get somebody vaguely credible, and hope to go to the country and limit the losses. That would seem to me to be the most more sensible strategy, rather than yeah, waiting when things the, get that's worse. The Fianna, that's the Fianna Fall 2011 strategy. Yeah, worked out well for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think there's any way out for them, but. But if you're faced with with these very poor alternatives, um, I think you, you could start to see them thinking, well, actually, maybe, you know, get to Christmas, get a bit beyond it. Um, people will be getting some money from us for the energy bills during the winter. Let's not talk about April. You know, let's let's try to have an election in March. Something like that could, could well happen. Uh, but the real question then is, as you say, like, what's going to happen to us in the meantime? I mean, we're, 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 we're stuck with these people. Um I, I, the only bit of good news I think out of this is that it it would surely seem to make a deal on the protocol more likely. Um, things are so bad uh, that you know trust and the lunatics are now pretty much sidelined for the moment. Um, Hunt who seems to be in charge. I mean, if you're Hunt, right, you're going to say everything's about the markets, everything's about stability, everything's about looking like we're a responsible uh, government now. Um, you know and a quick deal with the European Union over the protocol would be very sellable to the markets, right? As, as showing actually this era of craziness is over and look, we're back to being a kind of responsible member of the international community. Uh, and there's not going to be a trade war with the EU. And, you know, we're, 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 um, we're behaving now like responsible international citizens. So 
I think the chances probably of the protocol being fixed over the next couple of months are probably higher, a lot higher than they were even uh, two weeks ago. Every cloud is a silver lining, I suppose. Listen, we leave it there. It's a pleasure, as always, to uh, to talk to you, Fintan. Um, thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon, as well. We're going to be back again on your feed very soon. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.